you are perplexed by this, you can't go home, read Job, and wake up tomorrow feeling dandy. It does not work that way. God does not work that way with us. We're not simple computers that he will come up and somehow figure out how to reboot and fix whatever the problem is. We are very complicated creatures that he has made and he is changing us little by little, day by day, into the image of the likeness of his son. And it's a work that takes a lot of time. And so in the process of answering these questions, I want us to look at the book of Job. Let's go through the background information quickly and then we'll get to the story behind it. Who wrote Job? That's an easy one to answer. Nobody knows. Um, When was it written? That's another easy one. Nobody knows. There are some indicators within the book that the book is very old. For example, there are some references to some marauding tribes that are quite ancient. And by ancient, I mean far before the Babylonian captivity, before even King David. There are, two, there are two references in the book of Job to a money unit, a monetary unit that has no reference that we can find after the book of Judges, which is, you know, 12, 1300 B.C. Um, it's also referenced in the book of Genesis. The, the internally, you don't see any indication of a priesthood that Moses received from Sinai. In fact, you have... Uh, individuals offering sacrifices as opposed to the priests offering sacrifices, which is what the law dictated in the Torah in, in Sinai, which means that this is an indicator that perhaps the story of Job was taking place even before Moses in the Exodus. In the age of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others, those internal indicators indicate that the events may have taken place that early. When the book was actually written, we're not sure. Um, The Dead Sea Scrolls have four uh, copies, um, four copies, that's not totally accurate, four manuscript fragments from the book of Job. None of the fragments are very large. One or two of them just contain a few words and a few verses. But of the four, one of the scripts involved is what we call a Paleo-Hebrew script. And that's a fancy word that if we were Frank Cross, we would understand. Um, He's uh, world-renowned in this area, uh, as opposed to me who took three and a half years of Hebrew and is lucky to remember what I studied, or four and a half years, excuse me, sorry. I'm underselling myself here. Um, But uh, I will tell you this, the little bit I know. Um, The difference between, for example, what we would normally see as a Hebrew olive, which is... um, in, in typical form, something akin to that. Uh, um, that is the way a Hebrew Aleph would have been written two or 300 B.C. But because the Hebrews did not have uh, computers or typewriters or um, a, st- a stamping uh, system with their letters, uh, the, over time and culture, the way the letters were made were different. And if you go back to before the Babylonian captivity, you have an earlier Hebrew writing. And that same letter, which is an Aleph, much like our letter A, was written like this back then. Originally, an Aleph was an ox. And so those are supposed to be the horns of the ox that that you're looking at uh, uh, as you look at it. Uh, You can also see how the Phoenicians and the Greeks took that letter and basically turned it upside down, and we got our letter A from it over time. 
But one of these four manuscripts of Job that were found in the Qumran Dead Sea Scroll finds was written in this Paleo-Hebrew letters. Some scholars say that's because the Qumran writers wanted to uh, 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 show that they believed this was a very old story and a very old text, so they wrote it in an old form, like you might want to try and write uh, something in an old script uh, if you were trying to make it look antique um, I don't know that that's true. We don't know. Other folks say, no, this is a very, very old text that they were copying from, uh, uh, if not the old text itself, and so they copied it in that form. There are some indicators that this is quite old. There's also some indicators that it's old uh, from what I call Babylonian similarities. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. There is a, um, a four tablets that were found in the 1900s that were Babylonian tablets that the first sentence is, I will praise the Lord of wisdom. Talking about Marduk, the Babylonian god, uh, not Yahweh. But in the process, this, this uh, tablet series has also been called the Babylonian Job. These tablets date from 13, 14, 1500 B.C., and they're fascinating to read the, the translation. Again, you can find the translation in Pritchard's book, uh, something Near Eastern Text, uh, uh, Archaeological, or it's A-N-E-T is the abbreviation we use. Um, but, and it's in the notes somewhere. Uh, in the meanwhile, I pulled some of it out for you. I did not get it into our outline, so uh, it's available here on the PowerPoint, and I'll try and move it into the outline when we put the outline in final form. But it's interesting, this is a Babylonian Job because here is a man who says, once I behaved like a lord, now I have become wretched. My affliction increases. Right, I cannot find. I implored the God, but he did not turn his countenance. I looked backwards. I looked at my past. I tried to figure out what happened. Like one who did evil, like one such uh, uh, I have become. Yet I myself was only thinking of prayer. What, what this man is saying in this Babylonian tablet is... You know, I've asked God why all of a sudden I went from being Lord High Muckety Muck to being trash. I'm sick. I've got some unknown disease. My life stinks. And I looked at my past to try and figure out if I'd done something horrible to deserve this. But I, I haven't. I've spent my time praying and doing good things. Why am I sick like this? Why has this calamity come upon me? Then in tablet number three, the god Marduk comes down and uh, uh, saves the day for the guy and his life gets better. Uh, that is in some ways similar to the story of Job. That does not mean that the Bible went to that or, or that the, the writers went to that and stole that for the story of Job. They did not. The differences far outweigh any similarities. But it does tell you that back 1,500 years before Christ, at a very ancient time people were asking some of the very similar questions that are asked in the book of Job. In fact, I dare say if we took the time, we could go to the library today and find books that recount stories that ask the same thing today. Because this is a problem of the human condition. It's not a new creation. So, with that, we've got the actual book of Job. And if you were a Hebrew student and you were trying to translate Job, you would have a dog hard time. Um, I did spend some time trying to translate Job, and uh, uh, I spent more time reading the Revised Standard Version to help me 
than I did actually sitting there trying to do it myself. It's written in Hebrew poetry. And uh, uh, you'll find poetry in the Psalms and Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. You'll find a good bit of poetry in the book of Job. It's not all poetry, but, but most of it is. And the poetry is very, very difficult. It's very hard to understand and it's very hard to translate. One of the reasons it's also hard is the words that are chosen in the book, there are 110 that are used nowhere else in the Bible. And so you're looking at words that you don't have a clear indication of what they mean, how they're used. It makes it really hard for scholars to translate it. Um, scholars believe that there may be part of it that, that was missing as the events actually unfolded. We have found some indications of that in other texts outside of the Hebrew. Um, uh, but regardless, we in faith know that we've got what God wants us to have in the text. Um, um, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation, is not very helpful in trying to figure out what uh, the, the actual book of Job said because the Hebrew scholars did a horrible job translating it. And it's about the most freewheeling translation you've ever seen. This is done a couple hundred years before Christ, right? But, I mean, whereas normally they were extremely diligent and they would match word for word and thought for thought and idiom for idiom, um, in this... They're just freewheeling and loose and they leave out big hunks of it that arguably they were having trouble interpreting and understanding. Um, it is what we call a hybrid book. By that, it's not all poetry. It's not all prose, which is narrative story, right? It's a mixture. It's got some poetry. It's got some prose. There are some people who question whether or not the events are historical um, uh, I don't think that that's an issue for uh, uh, faith, and I'll tell you why um, uh, as we get to the inerrancy point on this in a moment because there's an inerrancy point we really need to focus on in Job. Um, uh, the Bible is, is what God wants it to be, and it's perfect in that. And God speaks in all sorts of ways through the Bible just as Jesus spoke in all sorts of ways when he walked this planet. Jesus told stories called parables, to illustrate a point. Um, you know, uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, written by Bunyan, is an allegorical story to illustrate a point, and it's very good and very useful. The, the idea that God does not take advantage of literary technique and, and be able to take a story and put it together for an allegorical purpose is, uh, 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 I don't think, a fair box to put God in. Now, having said that, I think that it probably is historical. Uh, there's a reference in James uh, to uh, uh, Job as a person. There's a reference in Ezekiel to Job as a person. And so there are some good indicators, and there's no reason not to believe the events did not actually unfold as written. But this should never be a hang-up for someone on a book like this because God clearly has the book in Scripture. It's been considered Scripture in the Jewish faith. It's been considered Scripture in the Christian faith since the inception of faith. And uh, uh, the consensus of all people is that this has God's fingerprints on it for us and God's message for us. So with that, um, the only issue that there's ever been on, on whether or not Job belongs in the Bible is not does it belong, but where does it belong? And that's been very perplexing. And it's worth just spending a moment and then we'll get into the story. Uh, some consider it a, a poetic book and so they'd put it with poetry right after the Song of Solomon because all but about three chapters of it is poetry. Others, 
like the Codex Alexandrinus, which was written somewhere between 350 or 450 A.D. It's a complete Bible, Christian Bible. That placed it between the Psalms and the Proverbs, just buried in there in the poetry. Um, the Peshitta, which is the Syriac translation of the Bible. The Syriacs have some of the most ancient translations. They were translating the Bible into Syriac before the Lord Jesus walked the earth. And for several hundred years after that, some of the earliest scriptures we've got are translations into Syriac. The Peshitta placed it after Deuteronomy because they thought that Moses wrote it. Uh, uh, certainly in a time period, they recognized it as early. And we're talking a couple hundred years A.D. here for the Peshitta. Um, we have it right before Psalms. Now, do you know the benefit of knowing this information? Let's say someone's asking you to find the book of Job, and you have one of those mind-blank moments, and you start flipping around and you can't find it. And they say, don't you know the book of Job is before Psalms? All you have to do is remember, oh yes, I'm dealing here with an English Bible. I'm sorry for a moment. I thought I was going through the Syriac Peshitta. <laughs> and you can almost find a version in history that had Job anywhere in that Old Testament. And you can cover your tracks pretty good if you're having trouble finding it. We have it right before Psalms. The reason we have it there, Jerome and the church fathers put it there, but really the final event was the Council of Trent. On April 8th of 1546, the Catholic Church got together and issued at the Council of Trent, here are the Holy Scriptures in writing in the order in which they belong. And from that edict of the Catholic Church, our Scriptures in English have been translated and we follow that order by and large historically. Interesting freebie from class today. Now, the themes of the book... The problem of human suffering, justice, and the consistency of God. If, if good people are suffering more than evil people, then what's wrong with God? Um, and, and just how limited our mind is, is another theme in this book when it comes to, to this. Uh, fourth theme, God is bigger than we think. You will see those themes as we walk through the story. Now, a word about inerrancy. Um, and I covered this, but Scripture is the word of God without flaw in what it claims to be. And so if, if Job claims to be a historical story, it is. If Job doesn't make that internal claim but is written as historical, uh, um, allegorical uh, 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 religious teaching, then it's that. It, you know, our claim is not... Uh, you, you, you can go through the Bible and try and turn the Bible into something God didn't make it in the name of inerrancy. Inerrance, and that's where you're going to get into trouble because you're going to find flaws and all of a sudden you're going to lose your faith or your kids will. But the point that I'm driving at is the Bible does not have flaws in what it claims to be because that's the way God wrote it, okay? So be careful reading the dialogues. I, I was in an argument with a guy one time and he quoted one of the dialogues of Job's friends. He said, well, the Bible says blah, 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 blah. Thankfully, I'd finished studying Job at seminary, and I was able to respond, oh yeah, well that was one of Job's friends who said it in the Bible, and in the last chapter of Job, God chews him out for being wrong. You can't just take a verse out of the Bible and automatically assume that it's, it's that verse out of context is, is, uh, is uh, true in what it says. I'm always reminded back in, in the Gospels where... Uh, um, the, the rabbis call forward one of the guys Jesus healed and uh, uh, says, God doesn't listen to the prayers of a sinner. Now, I had that quoted at me one time. God doesn't listen to the prayers of the sinner. 
Well, yeah, he does. It's the only kind of prayers he hears. <laughs> if you're righteous, you don't need to be praying. Um, be careful reading the dialogues, okay, when it comes to inerrancy. The issues of history I've covered. The location I want to throw out here because one of our members of this class has been to Yemen brought me a book. Yemen has a tradition that they are the location. Scholars disagree over where it took place. There are references to the land of Uz and some indicators that it could be Yemen, some indicators it could be other places. But it is interesting in Yemen, which is a, uh, um, a uh, Muslim country where things Jewish are not really smiled upon, um, they still have a lot of architectural niceties that are quite ancient, like these windows that have the Star of David in them. And uh, 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 I thank them for bringing that to my attention. I've held on to this for six weeks or eight weeks for fear that I'd lose it. Thank you all. Um, okay, with that, let's talk about the story of Job. It's a great story. I love it. It starts out with a prose dialogue. What I mean by prose is it's not written in Hebrew poetry form. It's written like a storytelling. Okay, And in the storytelling... Um, there's a day where all the angels are coming to present themselves to the Lord. And among the angels, Satan comes. And Satan is there at the presentment to the Lord. And Satan is, is talking to the Lord. And the Lord says, well, where have you been, Satan? And Satan says, oh, I've been roaming back and forth from the earth. And God says, hey, do you see my servant Job? No one like him. Righteous, good guy. Satan says, well, of course he's righteous and good. You treat him like a king. You've given him everything in the world. Who wouldn't be nice? You take those things away, though, and you watch him. He'll curse you, God. He's only nice because you're his sugar daddy. You're taking care of him. And God says, well, you really think so? I'll tell you what. You go to Job, and I'll let you deal with him. Now, let me tell you about Job. God had given Job a lot. He was very wealthy. He had lots of sheep and oxen and camels and and, uh, donkeys. He had... uh, um, Ten kids, seven sons, and three daughters. Um, I had more daughters than he did. But um, that's not always a blessing. The, uh, <laughs> I'm just joking. It absolutely is. And um, um, he, uh, uh, oh, goodness. Um, Job is uh, um, high social status. He's a, a, a real man about town, a bon vivant. And um, William Blake did a picture of him. And this is uh, 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 Job with three of his daughters. And uh, um, uh, we don't know uh, much beyond that, but if you wanted to see what he looked like, you can go up to Washington, D.C., assuming William Blake got it right. Job is uh, a righteous man, a good man. He's been blessed by God. God says to Satan, you think it's because I've blessed him? I tell you what. You go test him. You do whatever you want to him. You take anything you want. Just don't touch his body. You leave him alone. And so Satan says, okay. So Satan goes and has the kids killed. All ten. (laughs) Dead. News comes to uh, Job. Hey, your kids have just been wiped out. They were all visiting one of the houses and it's a big national catastrophe and they're dead. And while that messenger's telling his story, another messenger's coming telling him all of his camels are gone. Another been marauded, uh, taken. Another one, all of his sheep are gone. Another one, basically, he's been totally wiped out. It's him and his wife and his body uh, that haven't been touched, but everything else has been taken from him. 
Job does not curse God. Job's response is um, one that you may have heard. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. Yahweh gives and Yahweh takes away. May the name of Yahweh be praised. Job never charges God with wrongdoing. Now, there's a second test that comes about. In test number two, uh, uh, Satan comes back and, and God says with all the angels to present to God. And God says, hey, where you been? I've been roaming the earth. Have you considered Job? He's a great guy. Ha, ha, ha. I was right. You were wrong. And I should not say that in reference to God. God does not act that way. That was flippant and I apologize. The, the, but but the, the, the theme behind what I'm saying there is God says, I was right and you were wrong. And, and Satan says, well, God, but you are still protecting Job. See, you've put this hedge of protection around him. That's where that phrase comes from. You've put this hedge of protection around Job. You let me touch his body. And, and you know, he just doesn't care about those other things. A man cares about his own health. When he's in pain, he'll curse you. And God says, okay, you can touch his body, but you can't take his life. Keep him alive. And so, um, test number two starts, and, and um, it says, uh, uh, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Can you imagine having sores all over your body where you can't stand, sit, lay down, lean, do anything to get off the sores? Everything's hitting a sore. Scripture says that Job took a shard of pottery and scraped his sores and then sat in cool ashes to, to try and get some relief. And that's the best he could do. His, at this point, Job's wife says to him, um, Look, buddy, uh, you need to curse God and die. Okay? I don't know what's going on here, but you, you need to curse God and die. Um, Latour did a painting in 1630 of Job being mocked by his wife. She towers over him. It's kind of dark and hard to see. She's got a candle there. And the light effect shows her towering over him. That is her hand towering over his head. He sits there as a frail guy, and uh, uh, she is, in essence, mocking him, saying, how dare you just continue your life the way you're continuing it? Curse God and die. You don't have a life worth living at this point. Um, Job uh, does not do so. Uh, Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? course I think at this point Job's figuring this is like a couple of day boil type thing and it may be going away it wasn't Job has three or four friends who come to see him and the friends Eliphaz Bildad and Zophar they hear about this and the friends are are by my appearance is good friends it says the friends met together by agreement to go and sympathize with Job and to comfort him When the friends saw Job from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud. They sat with Job on the ground for seven days and for seven nights, not saying a thing. You you think about it. Those are good friends, right? I, I, I could have gone and spent an hour with him, maybe, if I could have found the time. If you're my friend and you're in that kind of pain... Um, I wish I would be a good enough friend to change radically my life and to be able to go spend seven days and seven nights just sitting with you, not saying anything. Yet it's interesting what happens with these friends. And it's here at chapter 3 
where Job finally opens his mouth to start speaking, that the poetry starts. Um, Seegers did a, a painting of Job with his, his four friends. There are these three that have been mentioned by name. We find out there's a fourth, a young kid named Elihu, who, who is there for this, but he's not even mentioned yet. He gets mentioned later in the story, but that's why Seegers puts him off to one side with the three friends on the others. I want to leave this up here while I talk to you about what happened because Job starts speaking to him. And understand, Job's now been sitting there seven days and seven nights and he's not feeling any better and he doesn't have a morphine drip to help him through this. He's having to handle it all on his own. And Job starts out when he speaks and he says, and I'm in chapter 3 and I'm just going to move through the book rapidly over the next 10 minutes. Job curses his birth. He says, the day I was born was like the worst day on planet earth. And I curse it. And I curse the, the, the first rays of dawn that came out that day. I curse my mother's womb for sending me forth. And I want to know why this is happening to me. Because this should not be happening. And this is Job just saying to his friends, I, I, I regret being born. It does not make sense to me. And I'd like God to, to give me some illumination of why I, a good man, am suffering like this. Well, his friend Eliphaz is the first one to offer an answer. And Eliphaz says, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? And I want to read some of these verses to you because the verses in Job, though ancient and old, have some of the best flavor that for me to condense it down and, and escape the words of the text is to rob you of the savoring story that's here. I love this. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? I have some friends who are. I don't want to be. Eliphaz says, I've observed some things in life. Evil things happen to evil people. Bad things happen to bad people, not to good. He says, I've observed those who plow evil and those who sow trouble. They reap it. So if you're hurting, Job, the reason you're hurting... It's got to be because of your sin. I hate to come down hard on you, Job, but I've just got to tell you, this is, uh, this is because of some pretty bad things you've done. You better start examining your life. Now, how many of you have friends who view it their responsibility to tell you what God is doing in your life? I have some friends like that, and frankly, I run from them sometimes. Because I've determined that maybe they're right sometimes, but sometimes they're dead wrong. And the best thing I can do is just listen to them and say, well, I'll pray about it and maybe God will confirm it. Um, but, but those people scare me to death because generally, uh, um, well, because I've read the book of Job. And uh, I, I, think, I think Job replies to, to his guy, he says, look, I'm not denying that God's done this to me. God has done this to me. He says, and oh, that God would be willing to crush me, let loose his hand, and just cut me off. I wish God would finish the job. I wish God would just put me dead. But Job makes the point that I, Job, haven't done any sins that justify this type of treatment when compared to what everybody else is doing out in the world gets them the kind of treatment they've got. See the point? It's an important point. Job never says, I'm holy and have never sinned. Though his friends think he's saying that. Job does say, look, I'm not holy. I haven't been perfect. 
But you compare what's happening to me to what some bozos over there are getting for their treatment in life, and I'm getting a raw deal, and it's not fair, and it's not just. Bad things are happening to good people here in the case of me. So Job makes that point. And then Bildad the Shuhite decides it's time to answer. And Bildad, for being a friend who sits there for seven days and night, seems to be pretty harsh with his tongue when he first starts talking. Here's his answering. Job, your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Your children sinned? Boom, God took them. That's why they're dead. It's because of their own sin. And if you will just look at God and repent of these horrible sins you must have been committing, God doesn't reject a blameless man. Your life shows your holiness. If your life stinks, it's your fault. It's something you're doing, Job. You better repent. Job says, look, I will be the first to say, no mortal can be righteous before God. Everybody's got sin before God. I just would like to talk to God about this. I would like to have a face-to-face with Him because while He made all of the stars, He set the constellations in their place, He's done all of these things, I haven't done anything wrong to merit this compared to the treatment other people are getting. And that's the point Job makes. So then Zophar weighs in, friend number three. Zophar says, Someone needs to rebuke you, Job. Because you're mocking God. You're saying that you have flawless beliefs. You're saying that you're pure in God's sight. I want you to know this. You've sinned so much, God's even forgotten some of your sin. That's literal. It says, know this. God has even forgotten some of your sin. Now, just devote your heart to God. If you would just repent, your life will be fine. He'll heal you of the disease. Repent. Of course, none of these guys have a clue what's going on. Job says, this is my favorite quote in the whole book. Doubtless, you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. No doubt, man. When you're gone, boom, there goes wisdom. You are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Then he takes his sarcasm back and says, But I have a mind as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. What you know, I also know. And I want to speak to God. I want to argue my case to God. See, what his friends are telling him is, Job, You have committed so much sin that God's punishing you with this disease. You need to repent. When his friends say that and they're not hurting, do you see what his friends are saying about their holiness? You talk about rubbing salt in a guy's wounds. They've now turned high and mighty on him. And they're saying, well, you know, you just, you know, they are sitting there as, as judge of his character and his life. They are the accuser of Job. This is interesting. When we get to Revelation at the end of the book, we'll see that God calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. Jesus is our intermediary. 
The Holy Spirit is our intermediary. They lobby on our behalf. They're the defense attorney representing us. The prosecutor is Satan, or in this case, Job's friends. Um, Job says, you're smearing me with lies. You are worthless physicians. You're not helping me feel better one bit. Then Eliphaz says, wow, you think you're wise? Would a wise man answer with empty notions? Would a wise man fill his belly with a hot east wind? Your own mouth condemns you. You are a sinner, plain and simple. Job says, you're the most miserable comforters there's ever been. what he says, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 2. I've heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? Oh, I could speak just like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. Then he starts complaining to God again. He says, God, you've just worn me out. You've devastated my whole household. My face is red with weeping. I've got deep shadows under my eyes. Isn't that neat? Even in Scripture, they got shadows under their eyes from crying. Yet my hands have been free of violence. My prayer is pure. I haven't done anything to merit this. God, when do I get my day before you? When can I cross-examine you on your lack of justice here? And the friends, Bildad says, Why don't you end your speeches? Be sensible. Then we can talk. You, you just, you're just overlooking your sin. You're refusing to do it. Step one, admit you're a sinner. Job says, you're just tormenting me with your words. If it's true I've gone astray, that's my business anyway. And how dare you exalt yourselves above me and insinuate that you're better than I am. Look, God's wronged me. I've been wronged. He's blocked my way. You should have pity on me. God's hand has struck me down. I don't know why. I didn't deserve it. And I want some answers. And Zophar says, and this story goes on and on with much of this same stuff. But the bottom line is, finally, Elihu weighs in and says, Hey, I've been listening to y'all. And uh, y'all haven't done a good job of answering Job. So um, let me answer. Even though I'm young, you haven't proved Job wrong. I will do so. And he speaks out against Job as well. Now, keep flipping. After Elihu does this, chapter 38, Yahweh answers. Out of a storm. And Yahweh does not come to Job and say, okay, here I am, cross-examine me, ask me your questions, let me answer them. You on the front row, press conference, here I am, president of, of heaven, press conference. Yes, Job, what would you like to know? No, God comes down as God. God comes down in a storm, and the one who gets cross-examined is Job. And God says to Job, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to ask you the questions, and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me. Who decided what size to make it? Come on, tell me. And how did I make it anyway? And how does it stay together? Where are its footings? Where's its cornerstone? While the morning stars were singing, where were you? Who decided where the sea's going to be and how far it can go and how far it can't go? Who decided how to, how to make the eagle fly? Who decided 
I mean, where were you for any of this? Can you do any of that? Do you have the power? Do you have the ability? Are you going to contend with the Almighty God? Is this really what you want, Job? And Job answers and says in, verse, in chapter 40, verse 4, I'm unworthy. How do I answer you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I don't have an answer. I'm not going to say anything else. God says, well, are you going to discredit my justice? Are you going to condemn me just to justify yourself? And God really presses the case with Job. And Job ultimately says, God, verse 40, chapter 42, I know you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. I spoke of things I did not understand. I heard you, but now I've seen you. Now I'm understanding. And I despise myself. I repent. Then God turns to the three friends and he says, Guys, I'm really angry with you because you didn't speak of me what's right. Job has. Now, Mr. Holier than thou, one, two, and three, here's the deal. You need to ask Job to pray for you. And I'll listen to his prayer. You go offer some sacrifices. And Job prays for his friends, and God honors the prayer. And God makes Job twice as prosperous as Job ever was before. Now, at no point did Satan get his way with Job in the sense that Job never cursed God. What Job did do is he challenged God's justice because Job didn't see that it was being fairly meted out. And God answered that with Job. And God said, basically... It's my justice. And it is not for you to decide what's fairly meted out. We know, having the whole of God's counsel now in Scripture, that God's justice is... If One of my favorite expressions is when someone says, how are you doing? To answer, better than I deserve. And it's really interesting to do that because, A, I think it's theologically correct. All of us deserve not to exist. We deserve to be dead. We were born in sin, and absent the grace of God, we are worthy of destruction. It is God's grace that redeems in us the value that has merit before God that comes back to Him. But you say that to some people, and some people's reaction when you say, how are you doing better than I deserve is, oh, no, that can't be. Some people will sit there and say, what do you mean? My response is, if we're alive, we're better than we deserve. And some people just get offended that I even say that. Because I don't think they wanted an answer to start with. They were just, that's just the way you say, hey, how are you? Well, let me tell you. Um, I, I, you know, I, I go through this and, and I, I end up with some points that I'd like you to take home. Let's get through the poetry dialogue. I've done this. Get through the prose. Points for home. Evil is real. Satan is real. Bad things do happen. Satan has the world under his control to some degree. Not without boundaries that God has set up. But this world is a fallen world in which we live. 
And life is not always fair. Sometimes things are going to work out better for some people than they are for others. As um, my, my uh, saying is to my children, which I'm sure they're going to grow up despising, life is not fair. That's why it's spelled L-I-F-E instead of F-A-I-R. Those probably Lewis would say, oh man, bad parenting technique. We'll use that for an example next time. Um, life is not always fair. Let's just face it. It's the truth. Okay? Answers to evil and unmeriting suffer, unmerited suffering are not uh, readily available. We don't have real easy answers for why is this happening. I'm telling you, if I had been there and I had been one of Job's friends, I might not have jumped on his case the way they did. But it never would have occurred to me that this was something God was working out cosmologically with Satan. I wouldn't have had that answer. If that window had not been open for us to see in chapters 1 or 2, I don't think any of us would have guessed that. There are 300 of us in here. Answers to evil are not always readily available. I don't think it ever occurred to Job that his suffering would give consolation to billions of people over the next 2,500 years. The answers aren't readily available and the answers are not easily understood. And God doesn't come down and offer to answer them. God just says, look, I'm God, and you've got to accept that I have reasons and things are going on that you can't understand. And don't challenge my justice. Don't challenge my love. And it is almost like what our parents said to us growing up in our household. Sometimes you have to take my word for it. And you may not understand the whys, but you take my word for it. And that only works if we remember who it is that's asking us. It's someone who loves us enough to give his own life for us. And if we take it within the countenance of that kind of a loving God, at some point, it's not that we quit trying to understand, it's not that we take our brain off and leave it on the hat rack when we walk into God's presence. We strive to understand, but we do so with a recognition that we don't always get easy answers. There are things beyond us at play. There's a battle going on that we don't understand fully. But we do know, and this is where we end, that God is God, and He is in control. And we may not be happy with where we are right now, but we call Him our Lord not just because of the days where we're the windshield. He's Lord of us on days where we're the bug, and things aren't great. And what we need to do is we need to go to Him and not challenge Him. We need to go to Him and take His consolation and take His, His, His love and take his care, find his mercy, and find his love. I don't know if that helps you or not, but those are the lessons I get out of Job. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for um, the wisdom that you have placed in your word, that you have seen fit to give us, to help us understand some of the more perplexing struggles. Lord, I, I would hope that most of us right now are not in places where uh, uh, things seem to be so unfair and, and may be unfair to us. But, Lord, to the extent our brothers and sisters in here may be in that place, uh, we gather together as one in the blood of Jesus and ask you to give mercy to them, to let them know that you hold them in the, sh in the hollow of your hand and, and that, that you're a rock of refuge and a, and a source of protection, a place where they can flee. 
Lord, be water to those who are thirsty. Be comfort to those who mourn. Help us to be good friends who administer your love and your graciousness in our deeds. And Lord, if we dare speak, may we speak words of wisdom of your love and your compassion and not try to have all the answers in our little brains for all of life's problems, especially those of others. You have been very kind and very good to us, and we acknowledge you as our Lord and our God. I pray your blessings upon us as people and upon the words that we have gotten from you this morning. In Jesus Christ, amen.